This is episode 650 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. On today's podcast, I have a special interview with David Wendell of Bushcraft on Fire. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is usually an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website. But from time to time, I interview members of the preparedness community who can bring a ton of value and information to your preparedness. Links for this podcast can be found in the show notes or on theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. Hey everyone, this episode is sponsored by the exclusive Prepper Website email group, which allows you to communicate with other preppers right from your email. You don't have to worry about your every link, click, or word being tracked by social media. This email group resides on the same servers as Prepper Website, so you can trust it. Other benefits include members-only videos, periodic webinars, and online meetups. This is a great value for $20 a year. For more information, visit PrepperWebsite.net or click the link in the show notes. Well, everyone, I'm very excited about this interview with David Wendell of Bushcraft on Fire. Uh, It's one of the channels that I watched early on in preparedness, and he put out some really great videos uh, and they, the, the great thing about the internet is they are there for you, free to watch and to learn and to grow from for your wilderness survival, your bushcraft, uh, whatever you want to, however you want to dive into preparedness. Before we get to that interview, I do want to give a big shout out to Jex7373 for leaving a review on iTunes. And so this is what the review says. Apartment Prepper episode was great. I follow Bernie's Apartment Prepper via her newsletter and Facebook. I've also gotten several of my friends and family to subscribe and practice her techniques as well. I have never heard her before, so when I saw that she would be on the show, I subscribed. Well done interview and lots of previous episodes to catch up on. Looking forward to learning more from you and your guests. Well, Jex7373, I appreciate you leaving that review and uh, appreciate you following Bernie and being familiar with preparedness. And you're going to get a lot more preparedness here on the the podcast as we move forward uh, with this episode. So like I said before, David Wendell is one of those guys that uh, I I love to watch on YouTube and watch the videos that, that are out there. And uh, I always refer to one specific one that just kind of got burned into my memory. And I know that I've talked about this here on the podcast before, and I even wrote a little article about it, and it was really more of an introduction. I even talk about it on on this episode here. Uh, I did a little introduction, and it was really more to share out his video on building a teepee. And so there's just a lot of great information out there. He's a good guy, uh, and he just really talking to him. He's just really sharing from his heart. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this interview with David Wendell of Bushcraft on Fire. Hey, David, welcome to the Prepper Website Podcast. Thank you, Todd. So good to be here with you. And it's exciting to meet all the new people out there that are interested in bushcrafting and survival training skills and hope that they enjoy the show. Well, you know, uh, when we were talking the other day, I I mentioned when I started Prepper Website, there was a lot of bushcraft, uh, I wouldn't say a lot of bushcraft articles, but there were a lot more than I see nowadays. Um, Now it's gone more to the the food prep and all that kind of stuff and the wilderness survival aspect of it. 
there, there's not as much of it. Now, you can find some of it on YouTube, but as far as the articles and stuff like that, not as much, but I think it's still so important, and a lot of people are very interested in it. So with all of that, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in bushcraft. Well, brother, when we got started in bushcraft back in the late 80s, there was nothing but books. There was no internet. There were no videos. Uh, the first videos I ever really saw, I think, are Ron Hood's videos in the mid-90s. And Ron and Karen quickly became good friends of mine. And they, uh, they, they, they were a big mentorship in my learning, uh, along with quite a few books like Larry Dean Olson and um, Tom Brown, uh, different books like that. But the most important thing, and I will tell every, every listener tonight, is whether it's books, whether it's videos, whether it's live training, you have to learn bushcraft by doing it. And I can remember, for example, you know, Bushcraft on Fire became our handle, so to speak. And the reason was because we were very good at fire. But it took me literally two years, Todd, to learn how to do the bow drill because I didn't have any teachers. And I got in into these books, and they made the drill look like one thing, and it had to absolutely be a different thing when it was all said and done. And, and so I sweated, and I poured, and I dripped on top of my char cloth, and I did everything wrong. But in all that, I learned how to do it perfectly right. Does that make sense? Uh, uh, definitely, yes. Yeah, I had a good friend take me in the back of his pickup truck in the middle of a storm, and he said, here – and he took my drill and he cut off the end of it and said, try it now. And when he cut the end, because I had a point, so I was just drilling through wood for two years. And when I took that end off and I put it on there in the middle of a pouring thunderous rainstorm, uh, instantly made a fire. So it, all that training is very, very important. And that's what we based most of our work on, Todd. We, we, uh, went out, we practiced skills, we learned a skill here or there. We, we actually made some skills that are used widely today. They, they were things that we had done just out of learning techniques, which is kind of interesting. So we've been involved for, for about 30, 35 years in bushcraft and wilderness training. That's, that's great. And, and I remember, you know, when, when you, you said bushcraft on fire, when I, Think back uh, to that uh, not too long ago. I, I know I talked about it here on the podcast. Uh, you did a video on a TP, on building a TP with a tarp. And I don't know why that always, you know, when people build the lean-to shelters and they build all that kind of stuff, I mean, that's one thing. Uh, and I, I know those are very important and that's very important to learn. But when you had that big tarp and you made that TP, I'm like, man, that is that is another shelter that I don't see too many people talk about. And uh, I, that just really stuck with me. I actually uh, wrote a little article on there. Really, it's, it's just an introduction talking about uh, the teepee. And uh, I linked your video on there. I embedded your video on there because I thought it was so, so cool. So uh, thanks, thanks for doing that. And thanks for all the, uh, the videos that you've put on YouTube uh, out there. So moving, moving forward with that, Tell us a little bit, you know, those who, I, I've got a lot of new people listening to the podcast, especially because 
the world is crazy. People are realizing, you know what, all the systems that are out there, uh, we can't completely rely on uh, the way the world has always gone. And so things are, are, are shaking things up and because of COVID and riots and, and all, the, all the other crazy things that are going on, people have started coming to uh, listen to the podcast. So for those who are not familiar with bushcraft, can you tell us a little bit about uh, or explain to us what bushcraft is? Sure, Todd. We have in our society from about 1950, 1960, become a very dependent society. We rely on everybody to do everything else for us. And that has made us abs uh, actually a kind of a weak people because we don't know how to do many things for ourselves. If a pipe breaks, you call a plumber. If your car breaks down, you take it to the mechanic. If, if you need a house addition built, you hire somebody to do it. And because of that, we have really lost a lot in society uh, from people who could just take nothing and do anything with. If you ever have to be out in the bush, uh, which we, the bush is, you know, out in the wilderness, you're hiking, you're hunting, it would be very good to know some basic skills to learn how to do things for yourself, such as make a shelter, such as how to gather water, how to gather food, how to make utilities that you need, like knives out of rocks, for example, or how to make an axe to cut down a tree, or how to use an axe to cut down a tree, or how to use all these different things. But it goes so much further than that, Todd. Uh, you could drag it out right into today and what is going on in our society. Uh, wilderness training skills and bushcrafting will help you a lot if you get into an inner city situation, for example. Uh, and, and most people don't know this because you learn how to blend with your environment. You learn how to uh, accept things that are going on around you and make the best out of those situations. You learn how to, to be able to be totally aware of what's happening so that things don't surprise you and jump on you, you know? So it's more than bushcraft. It's really a way of life. But for those people that are fishermen, that are hunters, that are, that are hikers, people that just like going out camping, we've heard many, many stories about people uh, that have gone out. There was, there was the people out in, in Washington, oh, I don't know, about eight, nine years ago now, and they, they were in their car and they got stranded in a snowstorm and they stayed in the car and the wife was feeding the baby through breastfeeding. But the husband thought that he would go out and try after six days to find a, a ranger station. And he walked in a circle and he died. Yet, I think the name was Kim. Yet Mrs. Kim stayed by the car. And they had everything around them, Todd, to be able to survive for months right around their car. But because he left, which is a, a cardinal rule not to do, his, his site of where he was, was lost at, the next day they found Mrs. Kim and the baby. So had he stayed there, he would have been alive, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, the sad thing about it is that there's a lot of stories like that. Um, that, that you read every year that something like that happens. So 
Definitely. I, I love that idea of it's, it's more than just going out into the woods, starting a fire, building a, a little shelter. It's, it's that way of life and that, the way of thinking, which, you know, nowadays really when you start thinking about it, there's not that many people that critically think, you know, or, or there's been so much for us, uh, done for us that we don't have to think things through. And, and really it's almost like playing chess, uh, thinking things through, thinking a couple of moves ahead, that would always, uh, you know, that, that, that helps. Being able to do that, I think, is a skill that not so many people utilize anymore. Everybody's capable of it, but not so many people utilize it anymore. Well, because we've become lazy, Todd, and we called it when, you know, it's been quite a while now since we put out some videos and a lot of people message, please put out some more and my, my typical response is, you know what, the, the market is glutted with videos right now. We have 350 out there, and while they're not the newest, best camera work kind of thing, they still get the message across. And this is, utilize, this is you can utilize these, these things in anything you do, but we used to call it thinking outside the box. Problem today is people can't even think inside the box, let alone outside the box anymore. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. So other than the, the ability to critically think and think outside the box, share with us some skills. If someone was interested in bushcrafting and they were looking to uh, up their game a little bit, what are some skills that you would suggest that they start to work on? And, and again, going back to what you said at the very beginning, I love what you said that it's, oh, it takes time. I mean, two years to, to learn the bojo and to really get it to where you can very quickly make fire. Uh, and you're right, there's a lot of videos out there of people you know, get after it and you know, in five seconds they got a spark and they, they got a roaring fire. Um, you know, so definitely that's not something that, that we are going to uh, emerge from the forest after our very first trip and be a bushcraft expert or anything like that. But if someone wanted to start learning these skills, these outdoor skills, these wilderness survival skills, what are some of the first ones that you would suggest that people work on and consider? Well, first of all, let me clarify something, Todd. Uh, with everything we've done and all the work we've done and the continual progress we have made, I still don't consider myself an expert. Uh, and these people that are out there making fires in five seconds, it can be done. I've got videos where I've made a bow drill in three, three seconds, four seconds. In fact, I made a hand drill fire. Alan Halcon officially holds the world record in hand drill at, at uh, 1.9 seconds. I made a, a bow drill, a hand drill fire on video in 1.7 seconds. So, but, but it wasn't something that was easy. You got to practice, you got to work on it. Now to answer your question, uh, as succinctly as possible, Th there is something called the rule of threes in bushcrafting. You have three seconds to live with no air. Uh, I'm sorry, you have three seconds to live with no blood. You have three minutes with no air, three hours with no water, and three uh, days with no 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 food. Now, somewhere in there, between the three hours and the, and the three days, there fits in shelter as well. Uh, in fact, I typically, personally tend to think that shelter is a little more important than fire, but a lot of people think fire is very important as well. So, 
basing those rules of threes on on different things. First thing that I would tell people to be working on, and most teachers will not tell you this, but because they want to go right into skills, you know, they want to they want to take people right out to the fun stuff, so to speak. And my answer would be learn to be aware. If you can learn to be aware, you will have about 80% of everything that you need in the bush at your fingertips. If you can learn to be aware of your situational surroundings, if you can be able to be aware of what's going on around you, if you can be able to be aware of the things that you need to make your life easier out there or to be able to complete your skills, then you're going to be in a much better position than people that are not aware. If you're aware when there's a mountain lion around the next bend before you turn that bend, you're probably going to live a little longer than the person just goes singing, skip to Lou, my darling, as they walk into the lion's mouth. So, so that situational awareness is critically important, Todd. And that is what I would say one of the first things you need to really learn to work on as far as bushcrafting is to be aware. And, and I see people every day, brother, I'm sure you too uh, do as well that are aware of nothing. You'll say something. What'd you say? You know, they're not listening. Uh, you'll, I, I will say to somebody, did you see that? And they'll say, see what? And you know, it was a UFO flying by or something and they missed it. Uh, no, we don't believe in UFOs. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm joking there. But, but did you see that bird? What bird? You know, uh, these things kind of register in my brain and I don't even think about it anymore, but situational awareness is critical. As far as actual skills, the first thing I would think that someone needs to do is learn how to make a shelter, Ted, because you only have those three hours without, uh, without heat, without shelter, without, um, actually being able to protect yourself from the environment and for example in the winter that's quite obvious you know you you can die of hypothermia in less than three hours if you don't have any proper shelter Uh, people will say just build a fire but shelter is actually more critical than fire Uh, and it's not too hard to build a fire if you have a lighter and you can find some tinders. So, so, you know, now, now we're not talking about primitive skills. We're just talking about preparedness skills at this minute. However, if you learn how to build a shelter and shelter goes from clothing all the way to whatever you sleep in, whether it's a tent, a hammock, a teepee, uh, you build an underground shelter, a dugout kind of thing whatever it is, all those things are entailed in sheltering and many of them will keep you warm. For example, around here in Missouri, we have a lot of caves. If you found a cave, you could essentially live inside that cave with nothing else because it doesn't get below 60 degrees, even in the winter, and it doesn't go much above 60 degrees in the summer. But people tend to focus on winter survival. You know, right now, it's a hundred and uh, well, right now it says 93 on the thermometer. But it was 101 a little while ago. And at 101 degrees, you're going to die out there pretty quickly of dehydration, of heat stroke, of all sorts of different uh, 
things that the body cannot adapt to without some kind of aid. So if you know how to make a shelter to keep you cool, for example, uh, you live you live down near the beach down there, and most people don't realize that if you took some wet sand and dug it out and built just some kind of little lean-to there on the beach and uh, covered yourself with wet sand, you're going to drop your body core temperature by about 20 to 30 degrees. So it's it's not just learn this skill or that skill, but it's what skill is available for your environment that you live in. And, and again, yours will be much different than mine. Uh, I, I could survive. I call it survival, which is not just surviving, but thriving while I'm doing it much better in your environment than I could in mine, although I'm pretty capable in mine. But I just love the beach, lived on the ocean when I was a young young person, and so I know a lot of tricks and, and things throughout that way. But here in, in the Ozarks, where we live, it's, it's a different beast. You know, you've got tornadoes, you've got... Um, now you get hurricanes a little bit, but they're, they're no bad. But but you know you've got tornadoes, you've got all sorts of environmental changes that occur every day. It could be 102 degrees right now, and tonight be 60 degrees outside, uh, a temperature drop of, of 40 degrees. So you're all hot and sweaty and all this. In fact, I went to a camp and we got really hot and sweaty and uh, hiking in it was very very warm we went down into a valley which will instantly change your temperature right and when we went to that valley everything we had was soaked and it went to be about 58 degrees that night in in the fall or the spring I, i forget which camp it was fall or spring but it went down to about 58 degrees and we had to figure out what are we going to do here? We got all wet clothes on and everything is, is, is damp and, and uh, a huge do, do, uh, I can't explain the do around here, but it comes in like you're inside of a cloud <laughs> and it just turns, soaks everything. So our hammocks and our sleeping bags and everything was wet. And um, I actually had to the next morning to my shame teach uh, teach the class it was it was about 15 or 20 young men uh, in in my underwear and t-shirt because that's what I had that was dry while the other stuff dried out in the sun because it got warm again the next day but humorous and uh, a little embarrassing but that's what it was <laughs> so those kind of skills Todd are important after shelter I would say learn how to get water you can only live three days without water and you will start to really have some serious problems with kidney shutdown, brain failure, et cetera, et cetera. So not only how to get water, but how to take care of water so that it is potable for you, that you can actually drink it. And then after water, of course, would come utilities. Most people run right out and say, you know, what can we eat? What can we eat? You can live a long time, two, three weeks without eating if you have to. But uh, you need utilities to get food, for example, maybe traps, maybe spears, maybe uh, if you don't have any kind of weapon, you, you would have to formulate a weapon. So, so those are the basic things that I would say to emphasize on. And then learn some wild foods, uh, learn some wild plants, learn what animals are where and when. And again, that goes back to the awareness situation. Good, good. So 
let's let's talk about. I mean, it's really easy when you live in the Ozarks and maybe you know you live on some property and you can go right out to the woods and you can go out and practice and, and it might even be easier uh, or, or easy for someone who has a backyard maybe but talk to us a little bit about what someone in the city can do uh, to learn some of these skills can, can we can we learn some bushcrafting skills at the same time you know not having to go out for a week's worth of uh, hiking and camping and all that kind of stuff what would you suggest when I started, Todd, I lived in Newport News, Virginia, which is a megalopolis. A Newport, Hampton Roads, Virginia Beach is a huge tri-count, a tri-city area, and I had to do a lot of skills on my back porch. I learned the bow drill on the steps of my porch. You know, um, there are many things you can do right there in your home to learn. Now, that does not mean that you are necessarily a champion at doing that there you eventually need to get out into some kind of an area i had a friend that took a course with me from john young who was one of tom brown's first students and she had nowhere to go we we would used to go sit in what we called secret spots and that secret spot was a place where you just went you didn't practice skills you learned awareness. You learned what was going around you, what was the temperature, uh, not by a thermometer, but by feel and, and what kind of things. And most of my skill sets actually came from spending that time in my secret spot instead of time doing skills. I know that doesn't make sense to most people, but when you have nothing to do except sit there and think, you come up with an awful lot of ideas and learned how to think outside the box, you know. So this person had nowhere to go, and she went to the end of a runway. I believe it was LAX uh, out of an airport. I think it was LAX airport, but it doesn't matter what runway it was. She went to the end of a runway because it was like a bird sanctuary and overgrown with cattails, and there was a little pond there just outside the fence where the planes took off, and that was her secret spot. Most people would think, what the heck kind of spot is that, right? But she, she became a very, very good student. If you have a flower pot in your house, you can sit by that flower and just think and meditate. And You know, if you have an outside porch, I don't think in reality, Todd, that people cannot get outside at all. And maybe with the nonsense going on around today. But most people know what grass looks like. And you can find a piece of grass. And you can sit down there. We used to do an exercise with people to show this very thing and to raise your awareness. Take a one-foot-by-one-foot one piece of grass. Now, you, you live out in the suburbs, right? So you have grass in your home? Oh, yeah. Okay, go out there when you, when you get done with this show, Todd, and mark off a one-foot-by-one-foot one section with a piece of string and go live in that one-foot-by-one-foot one section. Get right down on your face and begin to see the ants that are going there as giants. Begin to see the little uh, molehills that are there as huge mountains. It will totally surprise you as to how much you can see and what you can be aware of. As far as skills, you can learn skills anywhere. It's not hard to learn skills uh, inside, outside, upside, downside. 
maybe being able to learn how to light a fire might be hard inside your apartment and maybe the apartment complex wouldn't look on that very well. <laughs> but you could, you could certainly go to a city park where they have grills. In fact, for a long time, we only cooked at city parks by setting up fires and lighting them primitively, etc. So there is always an option if you really want to learn the skills and you really want to know what to do. There's a place you can go. Uh, I can't answer that succinctly for each person, but if they start to think outside the box like we were talking about before, they'll be able to find a place. Very, very well said. You know, there's uh, an activity that we do with students in second grade in our district, and uh, it's in science and talking about our environment and ex exactly what you were saying. So they take a hula hoop out and they usually pair up and they go out into uh, a grassy part of the, of the school and they will put that hula hoop down and they are supposed to observe what's inside of that hula hoop and uh, they draw it out, they, they write it out and uh, there's all, you know, the kids are so amazed at, like you said, all the insects and the bugs and the things that they see when they slow down just a little bit and they're able to focus in on, on one small little area. And uh, so that's, uh, when you said that, that's what, what I started thinking about, that these students get to do that. Now, in, in, the, in the day and age that we live in, you know, they do that as an as a activity in class. You know, how, how much do we take that, take away from that, you know, and do that on a regular basis? If everybody did that, you know, what, what, you know, what could we come up with and, and how would we be different if we were able to do that on a regular basis? Yeah, what we have to do is to make it a lifestyle. Uh, bushcraft for us was not, in honesty, when I first got into it, Todd, the reason we got into it was because I was a pastor, still am. And it was kind of back in the 80s and 90s, a big thing to hear about the end of the world, basically what's going on in our life right now that we're living through. And so we taught our children, for example, every one of our eight children knew how to make a backpack, how to put it together. We would have little backpack drills in some evening. We'd say, okay, you guys have 30 seconds to be in the car with your equipment. And they had to be ready. Well, we didn't say 30 seconds. I had two minutes or something, but a short time. And we gave them that time. And, and from five years, six years old, uh, in fact, Rachel and Becca grew up in it. They're on a lot of our videos. And so they knew how to make packs when they were three and four years old, what to put in it, how to keep their pack, what to have that would function for them, how to use that equipment. It becomes a lifestyle. It's not just a oh, weekend warrior once every three months kind of thing. If the, And there's nothing wrong with that. If, that if, if that's what you want, I would classify you as a, a camper, maybe a car camper. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not putting anybody down by that, Todd. But if you really want to know how to walk out, well, see, we could walk out the door right now if we had to with nothing except the clothes on our back and we can live. Now we won't live comfortably. We may not live a, a long, long, long time, but we could do it. We could, we could go out there and we can, of course, as we get older now, day by day, and life goes on, uh, we're, we're not, you can see all this gray in my beard, you know, we're not getting any younger, but, uh, but 
the skills are still there. And so it, it's that point of, of living that lifestyle. You said something really critically important. And, and I would encourage your listeners to listen to your words where you said, we need to slow down. We live in an incredibly fast-paced environment. We live in a society that has taught us to go, 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 go. You've got to be on schedule for this. You've got to be on schedule for that. You've got to be here at 2 o'clock, there at 2.30, here at quarter to 3, and there at 4. And while I'm a firm believer in punctuality, uh, we need to learn to slow down in life. We need to learn. Uh, Tam has a, a really nice farm out here. She loves the farm, and she does all the work on it uh, with her cows and her goats and her garden. And I often have to tell her, babe, it's 10 o'clock at night. You need to come in. Tomorrow is another day, and that work will still be out there for you to do. Uh, you know, we just need to learn to slow down some and to be able to to do things in a slower pace. And that's something that takes training, Todd. We're not taught that in society today. Very, very true. It does take training, and it does take practice and not feeling like you're 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 wimping out you know because everybody is like hey be successful go 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 like you were saying and uh they look down it sometimes if you if you're just like hey no i'm just gonna uh hang out and i'm not gonna do anything so uh you know good good stuff here um and in that whole way of life i think that's that's important i think a lot of people you know there's been a lot of uh movement as far as people especially in preparedness is you know moving out the goal is to move out and have that homestead have that farm that that you that you want to go out there and part of it is you know being prepared if you have a homestead kind of like what you were talking about you can have the the animals you can have the the garden you can have all that kind of stuff but i think part of the 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 desire to do that is uh, although it is very hard work like you were like you were talking about that it feels like you are slowing down a little bit as far as the rat race in the city and, and work the way a, a quote unquote professional uh, would work. Right. So. Oh, sure. I mean, our pace out here is probably with, not that we're lazy. We're, we're doing things all the time, but the pace out here is probably a hundred percent less than somebody that's in the rat race environment, so to speak. I lived very close to New York City when I was growing up, up in northeastern Pennsylvania and, and New Jersey. And uh, it, you go into the city, it's a whole different environment. <laughs> I mean, it's like you get dizzy. Your, your head is spinning. And you come out here, and it's almost an excuse to be quote-unquote lazy, as you said, just to slow down, just to have that time to be able to uh, relax, to take a breath of fresh air, to not have to worry about, you know, whatever's going on out there is going to affect you too much. Uh, our our closest neighbor, well, our closest neighbor is only a, a few hundred foot, a thousand foot away. But besides that, we have our daughter and no other neighbors anywhere around us. So, so you know, we kind of are off to ourselves and and that's a good thing. I, I tell people a lot, Todd, if you can get to a place that's outside the rat race, 
and it doesn't have to be a lot. It could be a third of an acre, an acre, two acres. It doesn't have to be 35 or 40 sprawling acres with ponds and rivers and this and that. But if you can get out to that, it's much better to shelter in place in an emergency than it is to go out into the bush. For example, I can keep a lot more gear, a lot more whatever it is that I need here in my home than I can if I put it on my back and start walking. Definitely. And that's one of the things that we always talk about, the the bugging out versus the bugging in. Uh, You know, the you have to have a really, really good reason to bug out um, because when you bug out, yeah, you're bugging out with what you have and you need to have a plan of, of where you're going and all that kind of stuff. So uh, th- that's really good. Hey, I, I want to jump to this question because one of the things when, when you watch videos on YouTube and that's where a lot of the bushcraft stuff that at least that I see, um, you know, we talked about videos before and, and you've done videos one of the things you always see, no doubt about it, is a knife. Every bushcrafter has their own knife and their, you know, their own brand and all that kind of stuff. But uh, talk to us a little bit about how important uh, a knife is to someone who is practicing bushcraft. What kinds of things should we be looking for? Um, you know, what kinds of things do we need to, to really think about when we're looking at a knife for bushcraft purposes? Well. The first thing I would have to say, Todd, is there's a rule in bushcraft. And uh, about 10 years ago, it became very popular. And that is two is one and one is none. And you can never over-prepare with critical items. Uh, I often get laughed at because I carry two main knives. And then I have a pocket knife and I have an SAK and I have a a, a Gerber on my sheath, you know, whatever it is. Um, um, uh, we have to understand that everything you do out there will entail your knife or, or almost everything from digging to cutting to if you have to kill an animal to eat to if you have to make cordage to if you have to cut cordage to if you have to build a shelter if you have to cut down a tree etc 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 now we have a few videos out called naked into the bush we put about 350 videos out and i'm going to guess 15 to 20 of those were the naked into the bush series where we literally went out with nothing and whatever we could find scavenge uh gain in the bush we would use. And so I have a video where I actually cut down a tree with a handmade hatchet that we made in the middle of the video, uh, where we made a hobo knife, a little skinning knife, uh, different things like that. Let me tell you, that's not so easy to do. So you want to have a tool that you can use. It is, it is your, let me ask you a question, Todd. What is your most important tool in the bush. What is my most important? I'm putting you on the spot here, brother. You're you're putting me on the spot. I'm going to use my mind or my brain. That's Uh, exactly right. Okay. That That is the most important tool you have. The second most critical tool you have is your knife. Yeah. I, I never understood these, these silly shows 
where you're allowed to, and, and they're all for ratings. You understand that naked and afraid and, you know, dual survivor. I love Dave. Dave sat here in my, in my dining room and eating dinner with me, but the show was silly, you know, and they did the best they could under the conditions they had to do and what the producers wanted. And they showed a lot of good critical skills, but these things are for ratings, but they like didn't take knives with them. You know, especially Naked and Afraid, you're allowed to choose two items to take with you. Give me a knife and a fire starter, dude, and I'm gone. You you will never catch up with me because that makes life so easy. And your knife is so critical. Now, I suggest people that ask me, and I get asked the question all the time, what knife should I get? First of all, the brand is not as important as some technical specs. For example, a bigger knife, and Ron Hood always said this, a bigger knife can do what a small knife can do, but a small knife cannot necessarily do what a bigger knife can do. So I suggest that you have one good size blade. Uh, there, there are many available. I'm not even going to go into any kind of, into any kind of uh, brands because that would be unfair. I'd have to name about a hundred of them and I wouldn't want to be unfair to anybody, but there are some very good brands out there. Uh, Tops knives and I had a, a good relationship and they sell a couple of different kinds of brands of knives under that. Uh, I've, I've had many, many knives, but my most used and most, important knives to me are ones that are at least a quarter inch thick on the spine because that guarantees I'm not going to bust my knife if I have to dig something out. Uh, probably a lot of people saw The Tracker. It was a movie put out by Tom Brown back in the early 2000s, I think, or mid, you know, like 2006, 2005, something like that. And it was basically to advertise that knife <laughs> was the whole movie, but that is the kind of knife that I'm talking about. Not that specific knife, but something that is that kind of a, um, a, a knife that is not going to break under, under main usage. My sons are infamous for digging with their knives and they have taken a lot of knives and knocked the chips, the, the, the ends off them because they dig with them, hit a rock. We In Missouri, you can't dig about three inches without hitting quartz or, or Missouri chert, which is very sharp. It's a, it's a knife in itself. And when you do that, it's going to bust your knife. So they dig roots, they dig this, that, whatever, and bust the ends of the knives off. Well, you won't do that if you have a good knife and know how to use it properly. Uh, the second thing I would say is, how easy is that knife to sharpen? If you don't get a blade that you can sharpen, after you've taken the edge off it, it's useless to you from that point on. So you have to, there are so many steels out there, Todd. There are so many different uh, availabilities. And one of the hardest, actually, is stainless steel. A lot of people like stainless steel knives, especially in areas where it's like you, you live near salt water. And they rust real quickly, a carbon blade. But I prefer a carbon blade even in that kind of an area because, number one, I can clean my knife. And if I take good care of it and I clean it and I sharpen it regularly, 
it's going to stay in pretty decent shape. It's not going to get pitted or rusted or corroded or this or that. And we're talking long term, of course. Nothing's going to do that in two or three days. So you want to have a knife you can sharpen. You want to have a knife that's comfortable. I've seen people get knives that are too big for them or too small for their hands. And they will try to use those knives and get blisters. That's a bad thing when you're in a survival situation. Or the knife will slip out of their hand. They'll cut their leg. That's a really bad thing in a survival situation. Or they'll be hacking a, a tree limb and cut their toe off. That's a really, really bad situation. So all these things are things you've got to be aware of and understand. And, you know, I'm trying to be concise, Todd. We could talk about these things for for hundreds of hours and not cover everything. But if you have a knife that's that's a good thick blade, and then I would also have a thinner knife. Uh, Mora is my go-to, and I will, I will call that name out because I just think they're that good. But Mora is my go-to for a neck knife or a secondary blade that is always sharp, always there for me. And when you get those kind of knives combinations, now, some people will tell you that a hatchet is better than a knife. A large knife can do almost anything that a hatchet can do, or I don't mean a hatchet, a small hand axe is what I should say. Uh, hatchets are pretty useless. Don't ever take a hatchet in the woods with you. But if you, if you had a short hand axe, like a Boy Scout axe or something, and you know how to use it and you're good with it, then you can, uh, you can actually do quite a bit. There Old timers, when I say old timers, uh, early 1900s, 1800s, even 1700s, they would take two tools with them, a knife and an axe. And, or actually, they'd take a large knife, a small knife, and an axe. And they would be very, very good with them and know exactly how to use them. You can live a long time with tools like it. Yeah, so the when you suggest the big knife, can you – and, and I know that you said, hey, we need to make sure that it, it's not too big for our hands or different things like that, right? Um, can you tell us, and I know this is, this is audio, this is a podcast, when we're looking at the handle as far as gripping it, what are we looking at? Are, are there some thoughts that you can give us as far as that? And then what about the length of the blade? Um, okay. you- On a large knife, Todd. Now, a small, a small knife, three to five inches would be a fair blade for a small knife. That might be an eighth of an inch thick blade. The one thing I will tell you what to look for is that it is a full tang blade. In other words, you can literally see that steel run all the way up from the top of the handle to the tip of the blade. If you can see that, that's probably a good knife. You do not want to take these rinky-dink uh, oh, what do they call those things? Rat, the, rat tail, rat tail Ram, thing. Rambo, the Rambo knives. Uh, okay, yeah. And they screw in with a little bolt on the bottom, and it's a waste of your money. I don't care how pretty it is; it's a waste of money. There's actually one that was made in Italy that was half decent. That was a good knife. It wasn't just Rambo. But people will go out and get these Rambo knives from the dollar store for thirty or forty dollars. And, and they'll have this little screw on bolt and they'll go out one time to chop a tree and the, the handle busts off. If you're in a survival situation, that's a pretty critical situation you just put yourself into. 
So you want to make sure it's a full tang. And <clears throat> that means the tang runs the entire length of the, the blade, even uh, over the, under the scales. You know, the scales fit on over top of that tang. So uh, as far as scales, I've used rubber scales, and I kind of tend to prefer them, in honesty. They have a very comfortable grip in my hand, but I have a very large hand. Uh, most scales today are made out of some kind of ABS, or they are uh, polyester handles, and they're fine as well. There's no problem with it. What you don't want is a handle that will slip when it gets wet because you are going to get sweaty while you're out there doing things. You will sweat in your hands. Uh, you remember when you were 13 and the first time you saw that little girl sitting next to you and you went over to hold her hand, how bad your hands sweat. Well, when you're in the bush, it's going to do that same kind of thing. And if you get a blade that that handle, that those scales are going to slip out of your hand, uh, that's a very dangerous situation you're putting yourself into and asking to get hurt. Is there any any considerations as far as the shape of the blade? Because I've seen so many different kinds of shapes of the blade. And, you know, you can – there's one that I purchased, and, uh, you know, we're not naming names, but it's not as easy to sharpen. You know, you've got to pay attention to what you're doing. And as far as something that's a little bit more straight – uh, is there any preference there? Well, number one, as I said, it, it deals a lot with what metal it is as to how easy it is to sharpen. And <clears throat> there are so many steels out there. You don't want a really soft steel, that's for sure, because you're going to lose your edge. You also, and I'm not going to gain any brownie points from any teachers out there, but I'm going to tell you what I believe, Todd, is the truth. You don't want a knife. You want a knife that you can sharpen very well, but you don't want to put a razor edge blade on your knife every time you go to use it, especially on your larger knife. Uh, the reason for that, and I didn't say don't sharpen it. I said don't have a razor edge. You know, you see all these videos out there of people sharpening so they can slice a hair in half in the air as it's floating down. Or, or, you know, cut a war. Those things are fun. They're useful. I can sharpen a knife that sharp, but I typically won't because the finer that edge is on the knife, the easier it is to roll that edge when you're doing any kind of heavy work. Thus, your knife blade goes dull much quicker. Does that make sense? Yes. So you don't want to get that really, really sharp edge. Now, as far as a shape for a knife, me, myself, I prefer a drop point knife, which basically comes to a slow curved point at the end. Gut hooks and, um, oh, what's, what's the term for the ones that come to the real sharp point? Off the top of my head, I just forgot it. I'm sorry. We were talking about different things and my brain went blank. But, you know, where you get the really thin tips on them and almost like a fillet knife kind of thing at the end, mm -hmm. they're useless in the bush. They have their use, but not in bushcraft. So you go and get a gut hook on there. I promise you, you're going to bust it off in about the first three hours of doing any kind of work. You go ahead and get that real thin uh, fillet point on there, whatever you're using. You're going to break that off. You're going to destroy it. 
it's not worth it. Have something that is going to work for what you need. You want to carry a fillet knife as a secondary or a tertiary blade? Fine, do that. But don't use that to chop down trees. It's just not going to happen. Gotcha. All right. A lot of good stuff. A lot of good advice there. Um, let, let's move on to this next question. Um, let's imagine we were going uh, out for an overnight outing, you know. Tell us what that might look like. If we're going out to the wilderness, out to the forest, tell us what that might look like from start to finish. What kind of, what, what kind of gear are we carrying for somebody who is involved in bushcraft? With me now at my age? <laughs> it's, it's either a camper or a Motel 6. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, most people think, Todd, and this is a huge fallacy that we need to get these 40, 50, 60 liter bags and load them up with everything but the kitchen sink. Uh, I'll tell you a really quick, funny story. When I first got into bushcrafting, we were in Newport News, as I said, and I thought, well, I'm going to make this, this pack frame. And so I made a pack frame out of wood. I thought, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm out there doing this and I'm manufacturing my own frame and, I took this blanket that I was going to use as my bedroom and I started loading up everything that I thought that I was going to need into it. And I had to have somebody hoisted onto my back. It weighed 121 pounds. Okay. Wow. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot since then, brother. Yeah. But see, we didn't have all the gear and equipment and lightweight stuff we have now either. So on my behalf, we had a frying pan in there and we had this and we had that. Uh, <clears throat> I would say go as light as humanly possible, but still have what you need in order to survive. So we might take, for example, right now, a bedroll of some kind. Uh, we, we actually got into hammocks about 10 years ago and love hammocks. Hammocks are a little cool if it's colder weather, but they're great in the summer. Um, and, and you have to take a little extra gear if you want to use it in the, in the cooler seasons but some kind of a bedroll. You want to have your knife. You want to have a way to purify water. Remember we said it's very important to have water. And you want to have a way to start fire. If you want to carry a little bit of food with you, for example, we're going out for a day or two, so we're going to carry our own food instead of having to uh, hunt fish or whatever, then you've got to add that weight in. And, of course, you want to have something to carry water in and to be able to purify your water in. An extra pair of socks or two and an extra T-shirt, you're pretty well set. And you can probably get most of that in for inside of 7 to 10 pounds. So those are the things that I would focus on, things that you absolutely need to have in order to survive. And, uh, for example, we carry a stainless steel bottle with us. That's our water carrier. And when we go out with a stainless steel bottle, if I have to cook in that, I can throw the bottle right in the fire and cook. So we take foods that are preparable with water. Uh, otherwise, if we have some kind of meat or some kind of vegetables, uh, you can cook them right in the can. You can cook the meat, you know, over a slab of wood or on the end of a stick. There's, there's many, many ways to do that. But you don't need everything that you think you need. So I would say if you're getting into this and you're going out, start with a 25-pound pack. That's fine. If you're not going more than two or three miles, it's not going to hurt you. 
you know, one thing I forgot to mention there, Todd, you need cordage. You always need cordage. And I just thought about it and said, I didn't say cordage, so let me say cordage. Uh, either 550 or, or some good bank line. I tend to carry both. I carry about 100 foot of 550, which actually gives me, 100 foot gives me uh, 800 foot of cordage because there's seven strands inside that I can split out. So that gives me 700 foot of cordage in a 100 foot tank. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I, I carry a roll and I don't even know what the length on those rolls is, brother. I think there's something like a thousand foot of bank line and it's basically as big as uh, a wallet or something. Not very big at all. And so I've got plenty of cordage with me. Cordage is very critical and you find out if you don't take enough, how critical it will be quickly. Um, but start off with the 25-pound pack. Go out there for a day or two or three, whatever you want, and figure out what you did not use when you're out there, and then go out again and leave some of those things at home. Well, I didn't use this, but I might have could have used it if this situation arose. And go out with that, but not with the thing, yeah, I, I, I probably would never use that in the situation I was in. And begin to wean yourself down so you can get into what we call minimal packs. Uh, again, eight to ten poundish kind of thing. And then your food obviously would be on top of that. But but eight to ten for your gear. And I think that's a good place to start. Bushcraft, Todd, is really a game of play and learn. Uh, you got to go out and do it, as I said in the very beginning of the show. And then you learn what to do and what not to do. And it takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of practice. does not have to be that you go out 100 miles into the bush. Go in your backyard, you know. Go in your – pretty much everybody that's listening probably has a backyard. If you don't, you really live in the inner city, go up on the rooftop and, and live up there for a day with just what you have and see if you can do it, you know. Sounds, sounds good. It's a, a good challenge for a lot of people, you know, especially right now. Um, when, you, when you're going out to this outing, you know, tell me some of the first things that you're going out, you're setting up camp. What are some of the first things that you're thinking about and you're doing? The very first thing is situational awareness. I need location, location, location. Those are the three most critical factors when you're setting up any camp. For example, uh, what direction is the wind blowing from? Is it going to be cold? Is it going to be warm? Do I need to protect myself from the elements? Is there rain coming in? Most people, if they don't have a radar, couldn't tell if it was going to rain or not that night. You need to be kind of uh, able to do those things and to understand or at least be prepared if you don't know how to tell. And find a location, for example, if I am in your neck of the woods, I don't want to set up out on the beach in low tide where by the time the high tide rolls in around three in the morning, I'm going to be swimming in my, in my sleeping bag and all my gear is going to be washed out to the ocean. So situational awareness again is critical on those things, Todd. You've got to be able to know what's going on to semi forecast what's going to happen uh, you don't want to build a, a shelter in a drainage ditch. A lot of people think, oh, cool, look at that. It's already dug out. I threw my shelter over top. I got plenty of room. Boom, you get a flash flood in the middle of the night, 
and you're washed down the hill. Uh, you don't want to sleep on a hill if you can help it. You know, uh, Ron Hood once jokingly in a video said, you know, you put your head down and your feet up and wake up with a big bloody head. Uh, so, so you want to be cautious about those things. So my main thing is location, location, location. Can I find firewood nearby if I need to start a fire? What about any edible berries, plants, roots, bulbs? What about danger? Am I a hundred foot from a bear den? Am I, am I, uh, you know, right on the edge of a lake where mosquitoes are going to just engulf me when the sun goes down? Uh, all those kind of things have to come into your head. And that only comes in honesty by learning about it, Todd, by doing it. You know, we built our shelters next to lakes before because it's beautiful. It's just absolutely gorgeous as the sun sets. And then you get eaten by mosquitoes and it's absolutely dog crazy and you're throwing off out of your pack onto your body or soaking yourself in mud so the mosquitoes don't eat you and you wake up the next day a big blob of, of, of red because the mosquitoes have tore you up that night. Well, you'll learn real quick not to sleep next to a pond the next time. That's that's very good, and I can I can just imagine, you know, it's like yeah, this is a beautiful place, and you get to experience all that. But yeah, the 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 key I think is that experience and going out there, and and like you said, I, I think we said that multiple times throughout this this episode is you got to have the experience, you got to get out there and do it. Um, for those that that are new to preparedness and they think that they're going to get some gear and throw it in their closet and when the apocalypse happens that they're going to, you know, they're going to be set. I think that's, uh, you know, th that's going to be a big, big wake up call for a lot of people. Um, yeah. I have two words for them. <laughs> You'll die. You'll die. <laughs> well, we're all going to die, right? We're all going to yeah, die. They'll die you know faster. What I mean. You know what I mean? You don't want to <laughs> die faster than you have to. <laughs> No, you, you can't just be, we call them armchair, armchair survivalists. Yeah. And it's funny, Todd, uh, on our videos, you have to go through and look at some of the comments on the videos of these people that have never put up a video, that have never done this, never done that. I show you step-by-step step on our videos what to do, how to do it, close-up shots. Like I said, it wasn't always the best camera work or sound because – it was 10 years ago. We didn't have the high fancy equipment we have now uh, for, for different reasons. And so we did all these things and you get people say, you did it wrong. You know, you shouldn't have twisted your arm this way. I said, like, dude, I just showed you how to, we did it on the video. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and they don't have, they don't have one video up. They've never probably even gone out anywhere. They're, they're just what we call armchair survivalists. And you want to be careful listening to them. And I'm not saying listen to me. But if what we show works for people, then by all means utilize it. But the key, again, is it doesn't matter what book it is. It doesn't matter who it is that's training you. I, I've taught people, Todd, how to light fires over, uh, oh, what was that program that we used to have? To, uh, Skype. Mm. I literally had somebody do a fire on their coffee table in their living room while I watched them on Skype and taught them how to do a bow drill fire. 
by just watching them and telling them what they were doing wrong. But I wasn't anywhere near them. They had to do it. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that is the key. You've got to get out there. You watch all the movies you want, all the books you want, all the videos you want. Ron Hood, Dave Canterbury, uh, Wilderness Survival, Naked and Afraid. If you don't get out there, you don't own the skills. Good point. Good point. You don't own the skills. All right. So you talked a little bit. You started throwing some names out there. So let's let's talk about some resources. Um, so for for those that are interested in learning more and and want to dive deeper into bushcraft and wilderness survival, what are some uh, some resources? Some places that they can go to get some more information. Well, there there's just such a vast array. You early mentioned on uh, no books available anymore. That there were very many. Uh, not not books, articles. There there people are articles. writing articles on you know that uh, new articles on bushcraft and wilderness survival. Not as many as right. uh, I used to see. And the reason for that is because it's so easy to put up a video today. Yeah. I can go out there with my phone, take a video of what I'm doing, and have it instantly online. So it's much easier. Also, honestly, if you watch someone do it, and it's a decent video. Now, I've watched videos, and I'm sure you've seen them at least on movies, but I've seen actual videos where the person says, oh, here we are, and this is the way you stroke the, we'll go back to fire, this is the way you stroke the, the bow drill, and you see them turn the drill a couple of times, and then you see it blaze into flames. Yeah, they probably didn't do that, you know? So you've got to be careful what you're watching. Again, I'm not saying we're the end all by any means. There are many people out there that know at least as much or way more than we ever knew, and and they're good to watch. I can't tell you who to watch or what to watch, but if you're that interested, go out there and check it out, how to make a bow drill fire. Look at our fires. We are very detailed in our videos that we have done. We will show you exactly step by step. We will tell you what errors there are going to be. For example, if your coal is black and striated, you're pressing too hard. If your coal is light brown, you're probably not pressing hard enough or you're going too slow with the drill and and we will show you exactly step by step what to do with each moment of it and those things are important you want to look for videos like that where they are telling you but i would say videos are your best bet because like i said i learned by books and they draw a little picture in a book and maybe the illustrative artist in that book wasn't me so they didn't do a great picture of it <laughs> And uh, the, 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 the picture that comes to my mind, in Tom Brown's book of survival, uh, they showed a bow drill, and on both ends it was sharp. Well, you need a sharp end on a bow drill. You also need a dull end on a bow drill. Well, I made my bow sharp, and I drilled through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hearthboards and learned my lesson when, when my friend took the, the end off of it and it was flat and boom, I got a fire instantly. Uh, so books are great, but they may not be the end all. A video would be much better. Now, this is just my opinion, brother, just my opinion. I knew everybody and their brothers writing books today, but 
that's my opinion because you can get now a book with real photographs instead of illustrations would be a little bit better <clears throat> but i would say to watch the videos now i would also say to carry a book or two with you because i have probably forgotten more skills than many people have ever known because i don't do them all the time and i'm sure if i was in a critical situation they would come back to me but if I had a book to jog my memory and say, oh, yeah, that's what I want to do right there. Uh, so I do carry two books with me in the bush. I carry a scripture book, a Bible, and I carry a book of, of wild edibles and basic skills. And those two books go with me all, all over the place. That's actually the SAS survival guide is what I carry. It's a very small book. But they're not to learn or teach me how to do skills out there. They're just to jog my memory of what I'm doing. Uh, good videos. Good videos would be my answer to your question in short, which I took five minutes to answer in short. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good stuff out there. I mean, when you're talking about the videos, and you're right, um, it is easier to do a video, but it's also, um, you know, you, you get to see it. You get to see it as far, more than just, uh, read about it or, uh, you know, see, see some pictures. So, uh, that, that's really good. Um, and definitely I'm going to be linking to bushcraft on fire and, uh, so that people can easily get to your, to your videos there. So, uh, as we're, we're starting to wind down here, I, I try to always ask everybody that I interview this one question, what is one question that you never get asked that you would like to get asked about bushcraft? Hmm. Well, that that was a nasty question to ask, Todd. I'd have to think about that for a while. No, you don't get you don't get to think about it. You gotta. You, I, I honestly have been asked almost everything you could imagine that could be asked, but I think I would have to go back to what I said was the most important skill, and that is how important is situational awareness. I very rarely get asked that question or anything about that, and in my opinion. It is the most important tool that you have. Is You said it like this, your mind. But when I started, I went to my secret spot for 30 minutes every day. And I sat there not practicing skills, just sitting there quietly, almost like a meditation kind of thing. And I did that for two years. And what I learned in that two years, Todd, was worth more than all the skills that I ever knew. Well, in, when we were you know, touching base and you know, we, were, we, we did a little call, a test call before, you were talking about how you're able to see so many other things. Like, you know, when, when you go out there, you're able to see things that maybe people aren't aware of because you are, I guess maybe you're, you're looking at things in, in a bigger view. Uh, can you explain that just a little bit? I can try, but I'm not promising that I can really <laughs> explain it. Um, it's kind of like in your home, you may walk back and forth from the living room to the, or from the bathroom to the kitchen eight times, but you never saw the sock that's in the corner. And that happens a lot with most people. I think most people could identify with that. You know, I say, why is this here on the counter? And go, I don't know. We didn't put it there. And nobody knows how it got there, but it's on the counter and it's out of place. I think the most important thing 
And that's what I think I learned. It's called baseline talent. And what baseline is, is what is the normal environment that you're in, right? And then when you're in that environment, you, you understand the baseline. Then when a ripple comes into that baseline, it's very identifiable. It's kind of like, I'm sure that everybody has felt their, their face or, or put their hand on their cheek or something. And all of a sudden, there's a little pimple there. And you say, that wasn't there yesterday. And or you look in the mirror, you know, and, and your eyes are a little bloodshot. And you say, well, they're not supposed to be bloodshot because you're used to the baseline on that. You're used to what normal is. So it's much like a rock in a pond. And I think I mentioned this to you yesterday. Uh, you see a beautiful pond out there, no wind blowing, and, and it's, it's a beautiful shade of light green, bluish water, and everything's calm, and all of a sudden a frog ducks underwater, and you see the ripples start to emanate from that, and the further out they get, the bigger they get. When you learn to know what the baseline is, and, and I mean intimately know the baseline, that was the purpose of sitting out there, as I said, for 30 minutes at a time when I was in my secret spot. Once you get that baseline, anything out of the ordinary will register very quickly to you. So in, in being aware, I think at first you have to really mentally focus on it. Remember when we were kids and we were getting our driver's licenses and we got in the car and dad's, I'm saying like, oh, crap, let's see. I need to put my foot on the brake. I need to turn the car on. I need to put it into, 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 no, into drive. That's right, drive. And then I need to turn the steering wheel a little bit or I'm going to hit that car there. And, and man, I need to turn this radio down a little bit. I can't think. Uh, and, and, and I go a little ways and jerk on the brakes because I'm afraid they may not work or that, that I'm going a little too fast. And then all of a sudden, here I am 50 years later. And I am like, get in the car, jack the radio, dude, and take off. You know, I don't think about turning the car on. I, I put my seatbelt on. Many people have had the experience where they're driving. They don't even realize where they've been for the last five minutes or remember that five minutes. And that's because we are so regulated in that because of doing it over and over and over and over and over again that we know the baseline. And I can instantly know when something's not right in the car. I can instantly know when somebody's about to pull out in front of me and I need to know what to do in that situation because I'm aware of the baseline of it. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And so if you apply that to bushcraft, uh, another reason why being out in the wilderness and taking time out there on a regular basis so that you, you have that baseline so that when you're out there, you're able to uh, adjust to whatever is going on. Exactly. Exactly. You've got to be able to adjust, but you have to know the baseline first. You will never, ever adjust without that baseline in front of you because there won't be anything to adjust to. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. Definitely. All right. So let me, let me ask you this last question. If you were sitting across the table from a friend having a, a, a coffee, drinking a beer, whatever, whatever drink, what would you 
like to tell them? What would you tell them? Um, in reference to bushcrafting? Yeah, I mean, you could take them wherever you want to go, but yeah. Life. As far as far as bushcrafting life, what what kind of advice would you would you give to someone that you were just sitting across the table from? As far as bushcrafting, I tell them to be prepared. As far as life, I would change it totally and say be prepared. So explain explain both of those to us. Well, you know, again, it's it's the educational value. It is the value of being able to know what to do, when to do it, how to do it, to be aware of what's going on around you. I think we talked a little bit about this last night, Todd. The, the very situations that are occurring all over the place in the United States today are situations where bushcraft skills can come in highly, uh, <laughs> highly handy, uh, knowing where not to go, where to go, when not to go there, what to do, how to stay out of trouble, how to get in trouble if that's what you need to do, uh, how to protect yourself if you are in trouble. Um, and, and those things are all things that are not only critical to, to bushcrafting, but to the entire uh, form of life itself, especially in today's society. I mean, it's crazy out there, Todd. I, I would agree with you. And the things that we're seeing out there, um, you know, one of the things that, that I keep bringing up and I keep saying in, in different circles that I'm involved with is look, look back at January 2020 and July 2020. You know, think about how f it's only been seven months, but how fast things have changed, how fast things have maybe gone downhill, if you want to look at it that way. And uh, things can happen really quickly. And if you're not prepared, you're not ready. Uh, you can be caught off guard. Exactly. And people ask me all the time, oh, how's all this affecting you? Are you guys okay? And this and that. I, I will tell you this, honestly, in our life, Tam and I were just talking about the other day, we lived life no different right now than we did two years ago. Absolutely no differently at all. Uh, it just, it's life. <laughs> and And it's no different to us. We hear all these things going on around us, but we don't. I suppose because of where we are, we don't experience these things very much. And so uh, I, I think it's a mental attitude, Todd. I really do. I think it's a mental attitude. If you want to get involved in it, you certainly can. We choose not to, so we, we aren't involved, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's great, man. Good stuff, David. I, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to hang out with us. How can other people connect with you? How anyone who wants to uh, find out what you're doing, uh, you know, get some more information about your channel. Uh, can can you just direct us a little bit? Absolutely. The easiest way is to go to my Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash bushcraft on fire. If you go there, all the links to the YouTube, all the links to the uh, everything else is 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 in my Facebook. Uh, if you look up Facebook on fire on, on a uh, bushcraft of Facebook on fire, bushcraft on fire on, uh, on, on Google, you, all the results will be us mostly. And so you can get to our videos there. You can get to our Facebook there. You can, just everything is bushcraft on fire. 
Okay. All right. And I'll definitely link to those links uh, in the, in the show notes so that people can easily just do a, a quick click and, and get over there to you. Right. Exactly. David. All right. Well, I appreciate that, Todd. And thank you so much for allowing me to spend some time with you, brother. It's been enlightening to me and hopefully enlightening to your listeners as well. Yeah, definitely it has been. And so again, thanks so much uh, for coming on. God bless. Blessings to you, brother, and uh, everybody else out there listening. Well, David, once again, thank you so much. And everyone, I hope you enjoyed that interview with David and just going into, you know, digging a little bit deeper into bushcraft. And really, when you think about it, it's all it's all preparedness related. And the, the fact that so much of it, his mentality coming from it, from that situational awareness perspective, that's where it all starts. And that starts in bushcraft, wilderness survival. That, that's where, you know, a lot of us are who maybe we don't spend that time in the woods um, it's this, it's the same idea out here where you, whether you're living in the city, whether you're living in the suburbs, wherever you are. And so just a lot of great information that we can apply to whatever setting we are in. And so, like I said in the episode, I'm going to link to um, his Facebook page so that you can go over there and see what he's doing on Facebook. And then I'm also going to um, link to the video channel, Bushcraft on Fire YouTube channel, so that you can go watch all those videos, all that great information out there. I know that you will be blessed by it. And so uh, hopefully you will be inspired to, to go outside, take a little bit of time to uh, just go out and enjoy the, the outdoors, but, you know, be one of those people that, hey, I want to up my game as far as my skills go. And whether that's building a fire, whether that is learning how to do something with a knife, uh, learning how to build a shelter. I mean, all those things are definitely skills that we should practice and we should learn and we should know. So David, once again, thank you so much for that. Well, everyone, that's it for episode 650. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Make sure you click the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app or head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. And that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. And don't forget, if you're looking for more preparedness and self-reliant information, head on over to prepperwebsite.com, where we link to 8 to 12 articles every day of the very best self-reliant articles out there. We also have pages dedicated to alternative news, firearms, DIY, Bible prophecy, frugal living, and homesteading. And lastly, don't forget to join the email list if you haven't. When you do, I'm going to send you a free PDF on 25 hand-picked preparedness articles that you should read. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace.